What's up, folks? Welcome to Simple Passive Cashflow. We have a author of the book that a lot of you guys have been telling me about. We have our mastermind groups and we have a lot of events that we throw. And this book, Die With Zero, keeps coming up. And then once I hear something three times, I'll look it up on Amazon. But once I hear it five or six times with a good point or two, I'll actually read the damn thing. And we just got finished up with a little impromptu book club last night. Something I do to force me to read the book, the whole peer pressure thing. But I got Bill Perkins here, much to your guys' demand, and with some good questions that you guys have submitted. So if you guys haven't heard of this book, it's a Die With Zero. You guys can pick it up on Amazon. Let me just throw it up on the screen here real quick for you guys. It's one of those really legit books with more than 100 reviews. It's almost got 2,000. Probably by the time this podcast goes up, it's going to be over 2,000. So that's pretty dang good, I would say. But a little bit about what we're going to be talking about today. A lot of you guys are reforming cheapos like myself. There's a lot of things that I did to save money in my 20s and probably things I shouldn't do now once you become an accredited investor. And we're going to be diving into the psychology I think there's something we all are conscious of, but I'll just say this book really was written very well and really played both sides. Don't be a cheapo person, but don't just go spend money willy-nilly. But you know, a little bit about Bill's bio before we get going. We really want to dive into his story because some of these questions really pertain to it. An engineering degree, like a lot of you guys, went to Wall Street. And he is also, it's kind of fun part of life, is the poker hobby, right? Yeah. Let's get into it, Bill. Let's set the story because a lot of your teachings in the book really got started. You grew up from that working class family and maybe pick up there. Yeah. When I was born, we were poor and my dad made it as he became a public defender. He played football and then we went from the projects to middle class to upper middle class. And I was a slacker in high school. I was a slacker in college. You say I went to engineering school. I really went to chase women's school and play football, (laughs) even though I rode the bench. Got out of college, hated being poor and said, this sucks. I got to turn my life around. And so that's when I started to really hustle. And the things I wanted at that age was like to be able to pay for a date. I'd like to be able to go out, et cetera. And having this kind of, what does it all mean? What do you want out of life? Thoughts at a young age. You can't swing a dead cat without hitting a rich guy. I like to say in New York City, but I would look at them and say, oh, but they're old. Who cares that they're rich? That guy's 40. I'm 54 right now. But inherent in that thought or within that thought, even though that's a silly thought, they're very old, is the idea that no one says that they want to be rich by 80 or 85. You just don't hear that in anybody's mouth. And what they intuitively know is that the utility of money declines with age. There's some sort of optimal use for money. Now, everybody knows that when you're a baby, you can throw a trillion dollars to them. The baby, what are you going to do? So I began to think about where is the maximum utility of money in converting this money into enjoyment? And what are the things I want? Now, I was young and dumb and ambitious and going to the club and getting girls and all the things that were marketed to me, what a rich person would want is what I thought. I wasn't really in touch with what I wanted, but it was still the same concept. And I was wrestling with that as I was struggling to make ends meet, then making ends meet, then becoming a fire guy, then lighting money on fire. I was really struggling. Like, how do I optimize this? If I'm not going to waste my life, meaning if I'm not going to go spend hours of my life doing some activity, selling plastics, trading stocks, trading commodities, whatever it is to make money. And I get some reward, which is cash. I'm not going to just let that cash go to waste. I want to use it all before I die. And in this book, I'm like, well, what are the variables that that affect this optimization problem? And how much time you have left on the planet. That's your death date related to your biological age, your health. Because if you import health, the ability to convert money into useful experiences or have any kind of choices becomes diminished. And then your wealth. You obviously, if you want to have a optimized life, you want to use all your resources, your wealth, your health and time. These are the three big variables I use. And I'm solving for maximum fulfillment. And so a lot of finance guys are always solving for maximum wealth. And health guys, maximum health and maximum time. And I'm like, no, all of those variables are there to solve for maximum fulfillment. That's the kind of the base assumption in the book is that the purpose of your life is for maximum fulfillment, whatever that is, according to your values. I don't tell people you should travel or you should play chess or you should do this charity or whatever. 
I don't care what it is. What I'm trying to do is give people the mental models to optimize, to solve for maximum fulfillment. And those are the variables. And so that's the book in a nutshell. I'm 54. I can tell a very long story about my life. But over time, for me, I've been wrestling with how do I not waste my life? A lot of people are concerned about how do I not waste my money? How do I save money? How do I waste money? And that's an important vertical to be concerned about. I'm about building wealth, about having excellent health and time management, but I'm more concerned about those variables as they relate to maximum fulfillment. And often say emphatically, I don't give a shit about the fucking money. I care about the choices and experiences it affords me. So that's the book. It's about maximizing your life so you do not waste your life. You can waste money, but do not waste your life. And I think a lot of people on the call today are engineers or they're more technical people. And it reminded me of that college optimization problem of a farmer, John, needing to sell chickens or beans, that right. combination. But what we're talking about here is it's not quite just dollars and cents. There's an intrinsic, untangible value of these experiences at different points of your life. Right. And get into the book about there's an ordering problem to life as well. I use the example that life is like Tetris. If you don't get the order right, you don't get the high score. And so the way I use this example, let's say you're in heaven before you're about to go to earth. And God says, choose from the infinite list of experiences that you want to have on planet earth. And you pull in 500 ski trips, 10,000 sexual events, going to clubs, starting a business, having kids, going to school, climbing Mount Kilimanjaro, and you just throw them in there out of this magical bucket. And God goes, granted, you can have all of them, but you have to get the order right to have all of them. And so if you're like, hey, I'm going to do my strip club days after I get married, it's probably not going to work. Right? It's going to interfere with it. I want to spend a lot of time with my daughters and go for walks in the park and go to Disney World. It's probably not at 13 or 14 when they like don't want to know you and they're hanging out with their friends. And those are very obvious examples. But there's other examples of when's the optimal time for you to walk the streets of Paris when you want to walk seven miles, which happened to me. Like I used to walk Paris seven, eight miles, 10 miles, 12 miles a day. Now that I'm older, my knees start to hurt. It's not that I cannot do it. It's just less enjoyable to me. So I get less fulfillment out of that experience. When I order my life, those experiences should be earlier in my life and experiences that don't involve my knees hurting should go later in my life. There's this optimization program that's running and when you think about those things and you're being intentional about your life, not just on autopilot, you start to see that your spend curve kind of matches this bell curve as well as you go down to zero. I am not going to be able to convert this money into useful experiences or the type of experiences I want later in age. And the data proves that out. You can look at the net wealth of people and it keeps rising in their 70s. And I always, you see it in the book. I'm like, when's the party? It's okay to save. It's just, what are you saving for? We're not saving for the sake of high score. This is not a video game. That's not how life works, right? When we're delaying gratification, it's for some future gratification. If you've been listening to the Simple Passive Cashflow podcast since 2016, you have seen me well change my mind a few times. At one time, I thought buying a bunch of rentals was the way to financial freedom, so you could be that cool guy at the local real estate club with all the other misguided landlords. As I became an accredited investor, I discovered the three-step system that we use today. First, syndication deals where you don't invest with dishonest operators to get better returns than the 401k financial planner garbage. Second step, get passive losses to unlock the tax best practices that the wealthy employ. And last and least impactful, number three, infinite banking. If your net worth is not yet $1 million, check out my free turnkey rental remote e-course at simplepassacashflow.com slash turnkey. All right, speaking to accredited investor to accredited investor, my one, two, three system is very simple to implement, but it requires plugging into a community of purely passive accredited investors like ours. Join our investor club for more insider access. Go to simplepassivecashflow.com slash club. Those who are looking to deploy more than $250,000 their first year or make over $300,000 in annual income or net worth over a couple million dollars should really look into our exclusive inner circle called the Family Office HANA Mastermind, FOOM for short. Learn more at simplepassivecashflow.com slash journey. The first step is survival. Everybody wants to survive, whatever, food, clothing, shelter. The rest is their choices. I want to live in comfort. How much does that cost? I want to do this. I want to go on a trip. I want to go on trains. I want to put my grandchildren through college. Whatever it is, you identify what you're saving for. But I tend to have a lot of rich friends who are saving and building wealth for nothing, which means they're 
going to work, doing some activity out of the infinite amount of activities they could be doing for nothing, which to me is wasting your life. And when I confront them with this, I get a lot of backwards excuses. I enjoy my job. I do this or whatever. Just kind of knee-jerk response that somebody who's been habituated into a pattern would say. They're my friends. So I push back. I'm like, you're fucking lying to yourself. (laughs) You know what I mean? You're lying. This was not the perfect job for you. You learned it. You got well at it. You enjoy solving puzzles. We're puzzle-solving people. It forced you to create dependencies on the social situation with work, but you're rich enough to see them outside. You can take them on a vacation with you if you love them that much. You know what I mean? Your eating habits, everything is focused around this job. And you haven't exercised those earlier muscles when you were like, I want to go travel or I want to do this or I want to work on that. And so this is what happens to people being on autopilot. And not that autopilot is always bad because we're able to get very good at things. Right. Our job or building wealth or spreadsheets or picking investments or the right yield returns, et cetera, focusing and solving these problems that helps us get wealthy, but it doesn't help us thrive. It doesn't fulfill us in the way in terms of maximum fulfillment. It makes us basically very good rats in a wheel. I implore people to get off autopilot, think intentionally about what they want from now to the grave, order it out and get the max out of life. And I guess specifically that the person I'm thinking of is like our average client in the mid 40s, where one could say that is literally you maybe past the halfway point, very much so if you're not in the best of health, maybe you're well beyond that. And it's hard to change the ways at that point. But that is often the time where they pick up a book like yours and start to ponder the operating system. There's a reason why die is in there in the title. It's shocking. People don't like to talk about death, the end. It's this far off thing, but it's actually, if you're 40, closer to death than birth. Your life and weeks calendar up. I have on my phone. I'm going to try and show this. If you go on my phone, it says final destination and it counts down in months. What's going on? A reminder. And then I also have a death clock that says 70.9% of my life has been used up and it'll get adjusted, right? If things go the natural way, I don't get hit by a proverbial bus type thing, but that wakes you up. Right. So, oh my gosh, this vacation here on earth is going to end. And when you go on a vacation and holy shit, we're only here till Friday, you run around and you get everything you can out of that vacation because you know it's going to end. And people are walking around planet earth as if this thing never ends. Not only that, not only like the ultimate death, but they walk around as if a season in their life isn't going to end. The season of them having small kids, the season of them in college, the season them in their first job or their startup or whatever it be, whatever it may be, or their 40s. What is the appropriate activities? What experiences do I want to have in this vacation here on earth that are appropriate for the 40s? Because they're going to end in the 50s and the 60s. And what does the last 10 years of my life look like? What kind of health am I going to be in? What activities will I be able to do? What activities do I want to do? Who do I want to be interacting with? And these are the type of questions and life ordering and optimization I get try to get people off autopilot thinking about. And so when they pick up this book, death kind of wakes them up and they're like, oh, it is going to end. And there are things that I haven't been thinking out that I want. And it does make sense that basically full life cycle hypothesis that I should use all my resources that I have towards my fulfillment, whatever that means. I don't have to do with Bill Perkins, but I should be using these mental models to fulfill myself. And that's what's going on. For me, a shocking example you gave in the book was you gave your grandma like 10 grand and that didn't mean Jack. And sometimes that's obviously in a very extreme example, like how I tell people, well, all right, think if you have $2 million in your 401k, that's exactly what the freaking government wants you to do. So you pay the biggest, the highest tax bracket at the time, start leaking it out. And that yeah. gets people going, right? Just like how yeah. your example really shocked myself, why save million, five million, ten million dollars? That ain't worth jack to me at yeah. that time of your life. I used to when I was younger, I'd be like, what's wrong with them? I would get on a bus and go see my friends. I would go to I would do this. And my dad, he's a stubborn guy. He wouldn't even get out and go walk down the stairs. I thought, wow, I'm bullshitting myself. Like these are parents, my ancestors, etc. And they are showing me who I'm going to be at that age. Only my once remove Because Winnie is like flying around playing instruments at 90. By and large, the data shows this. Any high net wealth, JP Morgan Stanley, their clients, they have a big problem accumulating assets. They can't get their clients to spend down. And I get asked this question all the time. Like, why do you think that is? They're like, 
Why do you think the net worth of people in their 70s keeps going up? Why do you think high net worth individuals have a hard time spending down their money? And I was like, because life has passed them by. They can't. They no longer have the attitude, aptitude, ability to consume. They just don't want to. Their fulfillment maybe come from hanging out and watching a show and telling stories or seeing their kids. Everybody thinks their life is going to be like a carnival commercial and it's not. And if you look at the data, spending by seniors, I think I say this in the book, goes down even when you adjust for healthcare costs. And the reason why is, my reason why is they can't. They couldn't if they tried. They just don't want to. And you've had periods in your life, if you're in your 40s or 50s, there's some of us, there's exceptions. But I always say like my glow stick days in the club, (laughs) dancing all night, they're gone. It's still available. I had the money to go. It's not as appealing to me. My glow stick money, if I've been saving that, it's useless to me now. I got to apply it to something else. My wakeboarding days, I have a degenerative cartilage disease. And as you get older, you're more susceptible to injuries at speed. I wake surf. But my wakeboarding days, gone. Last time I went wakeboarding was 50. It's not worth the risk reward to me anymore. It's not fun when you hit the water at that speed anymore. So it's over. The dollars that I was saving for wakeboarding, and if I didn't allocate it for wakeboarding in that time period of my life, it's useless. Now I got to shove it into something else. And so if you could see that pattern happening through your life, when you get to 80, you're like, holy cow, I have this pile of money that I did not convert into experiences that I wanted to. I did not get the memory dividend. I did not get the fulfillment that I could have out of this period of my life. I let it pass me by. And the money now is a symbol of you losing. A lot of people are like, oh, I have a bunch of money at 80 or whatever. I was like, you've lost life. You've wasted your life. I was talking to someone at a party the other night and we're talking about wealth. I was like, well, if I become a billionaire, something's gone wrong. And they're like, what do you mean? I was like, either some freak of nature has happened where an investment popped up or something trade happened and I've frequently made money or I'm doing my life wrong. I'm completely doing it wrong. I am not in the phase of my life where my net worth should be going up. Unless I can positively identify something that I want in the future that costs more money than I have now. And so that's one of the things I ask myself every day to work is why am I going to work? What is it that I do not have or cannot afford or cannot sustain that I don't have now in the future? Obviously, we're not talking to the guys out there who are like under a million, maybe even two million net worth. We're talking to the guys out there who, hey, you got to spend your money before you die in these like increments. I'm talking to everybody. It doesn't mean that you don't quit your job. Like you can still go to work. And it's really dependent on how old you are. If you're 60 and you're like busting your ass to save money for something, you're doing something wrong for the average American health. I'm just saying the average American. The time you spend to build the money does not result in the reward you think because of the decline of your health and your abilities, et cetera. No matter where you are, like net worth peak is not a number, it's a date. And so, yes, the type of things you're going to do are going to be different. The type of spending you're going to be doing, but the thought process is going to be the same. I guess like the problem that I have and I see a lot of our investors having is our burn rate, whether that's 25 grand a month or whatever, we need to have X amount of investments that kicks that off passively. I think it's getting to the middle, but that's, I think, where a lot of we're at these days. I have a problem with the fire movement, particularly for that reason, because I used to be a fire guy and I love the fire guys because one thing about the fire movement is that they understand the concept of enough. And a lot of people do not get to the concept of enough. It is never enough. They're constantly on the treadmill for no reward. I like them because they have that grit and they're able to accumulate something in one part of their life, which is a season. But there's two problems I have with the fire people. And I like to use this analogy. There's no amount of money you can pay me at this age and even 10 years ago to do 10 years in Sing Sing. I just wouldn't do it. Maybe there's other people, but at 40, I'm not doing 10 years and be like, here's $100 million. I would not give up my entire 40s for $100 million in Sing. And to the extent fire people are doing that a little bit, they're not to that extreme, But what they're doing is I'm going to deny myself this trip or this activity or this experience or whatever that belongs here in this period in exchange for some money and not working later and future experiences. And so at a certain age, that might make sense. You might do 10 years in your 20s and you'd be like, I completely get my 20s. But you know what? 30s are great, right? I'm really going to nail it out or whatever. And I'm going to have a very nice life, et cetera. 
And then the second part I have with the FIRE movement is to the extent that you exchange years and hours of your life for the principal and you don't spend it down, that represents years in life that you've wasted. You need to spend down the principal as well. There's no sense in having $10 million on your deathbed. To me, that is inefficient. I won't say it's a travesty. I won't say I won't beat people up too much about that. But I will say that it is completely unoptimized and it represents $10 million of not life lived. You can calculate it out. You literally just can go do the math. If I have X dollars when I die, it took me X hours of my life, X weeks, X years, whatever. You can back out the interest returns, et cetera, and go, this is how much of my life I wasted, as opposed to all the other things that fulfill me. And you did talk about in the half a chapter, the one reasonable counterpoint, which what happens if I need all this money to keep me living? Well, long-term healthcare right. insurance. Right. That's yeah. why they have insurance if you want to be very conservative. Like yes. That. I push back. I tell people, I think the subtitle in a chapter is you're not a good insurance agent. And I, I think it's one of those knee-jerk responses that people give when people are on autopilot. People are either auto spenders or, or auto savers. And when I'm talking to the auto savers, they're on autopilot and they're accumulating. It's a loved and cherished activity and promoted activity about saving. But it's detached from what saving is for. And therefore, when I push back, they're like, for an emergency or healthcare or whatever. And I'm like, have you run the numbers? Are you an actuarial person? You're essentially acting as your own insurance agent for bad shit or long-term healthcare when it's cheaper, way cheaper for you to buy long-term healthcare insurance while you're in your 40s or 30s. Who to professionals who will scrape their 2 to 6% edge gamble in the stock markets, et cetera, do whatever you're going to do versus the cost of long-term healthcare. And so I say to people that in order for you to optimize your life, you should not be your own insurance agent. Most people will gladly go pay for life insurance, dying too soon and paying out the errors or paying out taxes or all these tax products, but they're afraid of outliving their money. They won't buy the annuity. Or if they're afraid of long-term healthcare, they won't buy that insurance product. Which makes no sense because they have no expertise. They have a client of one. These guys have the law of large numbers on their side. I call them propeller heads. They have so many propeller heads in the back. Those beanies with the top calculating out the numbers and squeaking out the edge. You can't beat them. And there's no reason for you to be wasting hours, months, weeks, years of your life in order to be your own insurance agent. It's inefficient. You got engineers out there. It's not the optimal solution. Well, before we dive into some of these community questions, I thought one of the best ideas in the book was the concept of five-year increments. If you yeah. can explain to it and maybe why was it not 10-year increments? Maybe personally, <laughs> where did the five-year thing come from? Okay. Uh, I guess it's the five-year came from where I'm at in my life and the rapidity of changes. It's not set in stone. It's five years. People can do two years, et cetera. But every five years, I look back and I was like, oh man, five years ago, I was an idiot. <laughs> and then next five years, wow, I was an idiot. <laughs> five years ago. And then I realized that I'm an idiot and it's going to take me five years to figure out what type of idiot I am. So I just had this five-year bucket of, okay, let's be intentional. Here are these experiences that are appropriate for this time period. For me, actually, it would probably be four years in that area in that five years because I have kids. So high school is four years plus one. And I have another high school. What am I going to do when I have two kids in high school? What experiences are appropriate in this bucket? Five years. And then Two kids in college, empty nester. I'm in my 60s, 65. But I promise you, when I started looking further out, and obviously life is discovery, you don't necessarily know what you want. You discover what you want. A lot of the things that you're going to be doing 10 years from now will be something that you discovered between now and then. I think it's 30%. It could be 40%. But I, I widen those buckets to 10 years. Like when I get to 75 to 85, it's pretty wide. It's 75 to 85. It's not 75 to 80. Last 10 years of life. What are the type of things I'm going to do? What experiences do I want to have? And it's a lot of see a grandchild, your kid's wedding, walk here, ride trains. You know what I mean? Things that I think I would like to be doing, but some of that will be potluck, the movement, just getting out there and exploring the world. But the five-year, I say time Was it just like shorting up the time cycles that keep yourself more accountable? No. Correct. And it, it helps you with that life ordering problem. If you could perfectly lay out like I said in the beginning, God, the, the bucket of experiences in these five-year buckets, you know exactly how much money you needed in each time period. 
You know exactly your spend curve. You know exactly what interest rate you return you needed and drawing it down, et cetera. You would have a perfect outlay of the exact dollar amount you need and you wouldn't waste a single second chasing dollars that you needed. We don't. We obviously don't. We have to use mental models and it's a constant iterative problem. But using those mental models and laying out the type of experiences you are, wow, this is where the bulk of my spend is going to be. This is where my cash is going to go. And this is what I need to be in shape for. I just had my appointment with Peter Atia, one of the longevity doctors. And he said, well, what's your goals in your last 10 years of your life? Let's say you're 85. I said, I want to be able to walk and I would like to have my wits about me. I would like to have as limited cognitive decline as possible. And I'd like to be able to pick up a small child. He said, if that's what you want at that period, we have to start now and you have to exercise. Here's what you need to do now. But because I'm deliberate about what I want in that time bucket, and he asked that question, I can do things now to make that a reality. And if I'm deliberate about each time period, about what experiences go where, I am more likely to have those experiences and have more fulfillment, as opposed to letting a time period go by. And then, oh shit, I wish woulda, coulda, shoulda. This sounds, it's actually liberating, but it sounds depressing at first. It's like, you don't have one death. You have many deaths. The 40s of you dies, the 50s of you dies, the young parent in you dies. These seasons come and go. And each season, these experiences are meant for that time period. And so time bucketing is a way for you to get autopilot and making sure you get the most out of each period. Now, if you want to make it three years, two years, 10 years, five years, that's fine. The main point is that you're off autopilot, you're getting in touch with yourself, you're thinking about what fulfills you, you're thinking about what experiences you want to have. And most importantly, you're thinking about when those experiences belong. A lot of people think it's, oh, I'm going to retire and it's going to be like the movie, The Bucket List, and I'm going to run around the globe and do all these things. And it's absolutely 100% not like that. There is no data that supports that anywhere. For me, climbing Mount Fuji, I'll never do that shit again. (laughs) <laughs> too old for that but now that now kids right once kids come into the picture you're getting married a lot of these doors close you're yeah. gonna do that those types of experiences anymore and some of them you'll do but it's not necessarily optimal it's not maximum fulfillment some things will transfer from one time period to another but you don't get as much fulfillment and enjoyment out of it than had you done it at the proper period. This is the difference between a static decision, whether you had water or juice for this morning, really not going to affect you that much. That's a static decision. But there's dynamic decisions that change every single subsequent activity. Getting married is one of the biggest dynamic decisions you could have. And I think the biggest is having kids. And I have an example of that when I was in Bali with my friend Dan, goofing off, divorced and single and having a great time. And I was like, I got to go home. He said, what are you doing? Because I got to get home. My daughter's got a soccer game. I got to go. So I got to fly all the way across, whatever. And he's like, you're crazy. Like, why are you choosing to go all the way back to go to this, your kid's soccer game? I said, Dan, I made this decision 13 years ago. I didn't know it then, but I made this decision 13 years ago. I have to go. And so that's a dynamic decision, right? Many decisions in many situations were made the day I decided to have kids. And this happens in many ways, where you move, who you married, et cetera. Thinking deeply and getting intentional about the order of your life and what experiences belong when will really help you get more fulfillment out of this one ride you have. In the book, you made like, you had a pivot point. I guess we call this the Han Solo moment when Han meets Luke and Leia and they go off on their little journey and their life changes. But you mentioned that when you worked on Wall Street, I think in your 20s, right? Your boss told you're an idiot. Yes. Because you're going to make so much more money. What what the (laughs) hell were you thinking? You're going to make so much money. I'm wondering if, that was truly the pivot point or was there some other events or did this take you five years to really get in your head after your buddy went off his European trip and rubbed in your face? Was it quick or was there other stories or events? Definitely was a quick point. It ping ponged me. So it didn't have me optimal. It just put me from saving as much as I possibly could, getting the bus ticket, driving a limo at night to make ends meet. And I still hustled. Didn't matter how much money I made, I was broke all the time. Made a quarter million dollars that year, spent 251,000, you know what I mean? Had a credit card debt. And at the time I was still thinking, okay, but what's the optimal thing to do? I just went from one version of autopilot to another version of autopilot, but still thinking, nagging in the back of my head, what's the optimal thing? And it wasn't as intentional as I thought. When I think back to my 20s, I had a great time. I spent 
a lot of money and I would not change that aspect of it. I wouldn't be like, wish I had that money compounded right now. I'd have an extra five million. No way. I would not take the investment return on that money and give up those experiences and the memory dividends associated with them. But what I will say is that had I really sat down and thought deliberately about what activities and what I can do, et cetera, I think I would have had more enriching experiences with the money. I just went on a kind of like a spend and have a good time type of autopilot instead of what experiences belong here? What resources can I bring to bear to have those experiences? What experts can I bring in to open up my mind to what type of experiences I should have? What are the people who have lived life? Let me sit down with friends and people I know have lived life. Let me ask them a couple of questions about what they wish they had done or things that are around. Had I been intentional about this and did research, had, had I take my life as seriously as I took my job, I would have had a much more fulfilling experience in my 20s. And so that I've come into there's EO and there's Tiger Group. And one of the questions I ask them is, can I talk to you like you were my best friend? And I'm going to drop F-bombs and I'm going to push back. And once they give me permission, the gloves are off. It's a question. A lot of people have KPIs, cap rates, these metrics for their business. And I go, what KPIs do you have for key performance indicators in case I'm sure your audience knows, but do you have for your net fulfillment, for your life, for your enjoyment? And not a single one of them raises their hands, not a single metric. And then I get on them. I'm like, are you guys fucking serious? Do you take your fucking life serious? What kind of idiots are you? And really get on them. And then that just to get through the ego, et cetera. And everybody's kind of shocked, wakes them up. Are you guys joking? You're not taking your life seriously. You're telling me you take accounting for your plastic company more seriously than your life and your fulfillment? Based on what the real business is, right? The real business, like you're accumulating wealth in your job so that you can have a fulfilling life. Your life is not to fulfill this job. And so they have it backwards. And it's not on purpose. They didn't wake up when they weren't 17 and be like, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be religiously dedicated to building this business and life or whatever. They were thinking like, I'm going to build this empire so that I can do whatever I want. And somewhere along the way, there was a disconnect. There was a habit formed that took them away from that. They're like people that wake up one day and like, how did I get this fat? You have a habit of eating snacks, 300 calories a day, roughly every 13 days, it's a pound of fat. And then here we are 40 pounds overweight after two years. And so they've atrophied those, that mentality, those muscles, I use the muscles, they've atrophied those muscles for fulfillment that they wanted to really want. And they've gotten really good at doing their job and habituated that. And there's a disconnect. So such that they get into this extreme example where they know the detailed minutia and their direct reports have all these KPIs for the business and ratios, et cetera, and they have none for their life. Zero. You don't have that one of those spreadsheets and then with the second tab, some sample five-year increment bucket list stuff. If you go to diewithzerobook.com, there's templates, right? I put up like a template one with some partial filled out things for mine. There's a time bucketing exercise and there's a very simple, originally this book was supposed to be an app for me. I wasn't going to write a book for anybody. I wanted to have an app that quickly, once I talked to economists and, and computer programmers, there's not enough computing programming power in the world to do what you want to do. And I wanted something to tell me every day, you should be spending this much to get to zero. You've lived this day. Your odds are dying this day. These are the things that you've indicated. You, My own self-ad targeting thing. You should be doing this. This should be your charity donations this year, this week or whatever. Here is the mix of physical activities you should be doing versus non-physical activities. I wanted this supercomputer godlike program to guide me to the grave, optimizing every second here on earth. And when I went for a psychological evaluation as part of the annual try and let you make you live forever part of the health, they asked, do you have stress? Are you afraid of running out of money? And I said, I hope I run out of money. And they were like, what? And then I was like, I went on a spiel and they said, no one's ever answered the question that way. You've got to write a book. And so that's how it became a book. And that's how I can't really make a program. But what I can do is get mental models on how to think about your life and how to basically save your life, eliminate waste so that you get maximum fulfillment. You're never going to get to perfect. I'm not going to build this computer that has not going to be God with down to the second. This is my lift and this is my decline curve and this is my lung capacity curve. And this is the watts per kilogram of energy that I have. So therefore, I know I can't walk the streets of Paris. So I need to go to Paris this month versus that month. I'm not going to be able to do that. But what I am going to do is have the mental models to help me make these decisions I'm going to have time bucketing exercises to really be intentional about 
what I want out of my life in each time period that is going to help me not waste my life. And I'm sharing it with the world because my greatest fantasy has changed since I was a teenager, right? My greatest fantasy is saving a life, right? I think a lot of people have that. And so when I say save a life, a lot of people are like, what the hell are you talking about, Perkins? What do you mean save a life? Like your book is not saving life. And I go, well, guess what? If somebody's drowning off the shore and you pull them out of the water, give them mouth to mouth, and you're like, you saved me. And you're like, yeah, great, you're saved. You guess what? They're still going to die. They're absolutely 100% going to die. They're just not going to die that day. And all you've done is give them more experiences and more choices, more chances to fulfill themselves. So when I write a book that gets you to optimize your life and get more fulfillment and more choices and more experiences, et cetera, I'm doing the same thing. Bigger impact. I think so. I think because there's only so many people I can rescue out of the water. I've never done it anyway. I might drown myself, but I can put these mental models out there, let the idea seep past people's egos and their fears. And if they just implement one or two things, if somebody even with no money goes, instead of doing my hobby right now, I thought about the time bucket. And instead of arguing about spending times or who's watching with the kids with my wife, I'm going to watch the kids with the kids tonight, because I want to have these experiences and I won't get to have them when they're teenagers. I want to build this and I'm going to have memory dividends associated with these experiences. They're going to pay me dividends to the day I die. And I'm going to invest in this time now. That's a no money decision for more fulfilling life, optimizing a life decision, just on ordering it, just by having a new perspective of what experiences belong when. You mentioned you got kids. A lot of people listening has got kids. You know, what's your thought process on balancing? I'm sure you obviously agree. You got to save. You got to have that grit. The kids, you can't just give the kids money or can you? What is your approach to this whole quantum? I kind of punt on the idea of should you give kids your money or not give kids money? What I really feel strongly about is the when you should give your kids the money. If you're going to give it to them. If you look at the stats and the data, the average age of an inheritance is 60 or the median age is 60. And that makes no fucking sense. <laughs> the laws of physics, the ability to convert money into experiences, the impact that the money will have is the same for you as it is for your kids. And so giving your kids $200,000 at say 30, when they reach mental peak and are close to physical peak, is going to, have, going to be like 5 million at 60. Because our bodies... And our own, what I introduced this concept of your own personal interest rate is much greater than the market rate. And we haven't talked about the concept of memory dividends. When you include the fact that when you have an experience, your fulfillment is not just when you do that experience, but it's also the recall of that experience. Every time you recall it, every time you remember your wedding, your first kiss, the game winning home run, the time you went out with the fellas and started a fight and he got beat up, whatever it is, right? Like, you get enjoyment out of that. Not only that, it's radioactive because you tell those stories and then other people laugh about it and creates more moments, et cetera. You think about it, the money is for creating experiences and choices. When I say experiences, I mean in the broadest sense. Whether you give it to a charity, you use it to go hedonistic or charitable or whatever, it just really means choices. When you invest in an experience, it's not just that experience that you get fulfillment from. It's the recall of that experience for the rest of your life as long as you remember it. And so that's the dividend you get. So you can invest in a stock and it pays a 5% dividend and you get that money and then you take that money and you invest in a future experience. But perhaps you get fulfillment, some fulfillment score at 70 when you do that experience. I'm going to use an extreme example. But perhaps the investment in the experience at 50 plus the associated memory dividends that are associated with it will be a higher fulfillment score than doing the activity at 70. And that's just a mental model to think about it. Like for every person, it's going to be different. And at every age, like when you're 20, saying, hey, maybe I'll take two ski trips when I'm 30, save the money, as opposed to one ski trip now, it might make sense. For me, at 50, I'll take the one ski trip now. Two ski trips, I don't know if my knees can handle it. I don't know if my back can handle it. I don't know if my friends will be around that I want to go with. Like you said, I'm not going to do Mount Fuji. <laughs> You're not saving up for two Mount Fuji trips later in life. You're going to do one Mount Fuji trip now. And so bringing that back to the kids, you can give your kids money or not give them kids money. But what I implore people to do is not have it be some random amount, which is basically the money you don't spend when you die at a random date, which is quasi random when you're going to die. 
to random people because sometimes children do predecease us. And so what I think, what I say is be intentional. You need to separate the money out from your estate because I don't know, let's say you get in a fight or an accident, whatever, you're gambling the kid's money. You forgot to fill out some tax form. The IRS jams you for taxes and penalty. Like your kid's money is at risk. So it should be in a trust for them and separated out if you have money to give them. That doesn't mean they get the money at 12. It just means that it's their money and it's invested and it's growing. And then you pick the time that they should get control of that. And I argue that the optimal time is between 25 and 33, but no later than 33 I've come to. Because the reason why is that people reach mental maturity at 28 on average, and people make reach physical maturity at 33. And then you're in plateau and decline. And so once they hit 33, their ability to convert cash into life experiences starts to decline. And their life is passing them by. The inheritance is for them to have experiences. And the impact of those experiences, there's a point where the money has maximum conversion value. And I argue that maximum conversion value for young adults is between 25 and 33. Very prudent ages, I think, to avoid the spoiled kid that does whatever and comes too little too late or too much too late. Uh, Too much too late. And do I have the date exact? No. But one thing I'm definitely sure, it's not 60, it's not 55. That is just silly. If you're holding back money to give to your legacy, if you're one of those people and you're waiting till you die, you're 100% doing it wrong. I'm absolutely certain of that. You'd rather err on the side of sending your kid to some European rave fest with a gazillion dollars than to have them get it at 40 to 50. Yeah, here's the deal. I've had this conversation. I am not trying to control my kids from the grave. I am not trying to control them as an adult. They are who they are. A lot of people, I want to control and give it to them at 33 and whatever. Do you realize they're adults? They are who they are. And it's their ride. I say, listen, I tell my friends, I'm like, fuck me. I live my life. I've made my mistakes. I've had my fun. I was free to make my mistakes and make my wins. And if I blew it, I've gone broke before and I've made the money back and I've enjoyed the ride and I want to hit the grave with scars. If I don't hit the grave with scars, I haven't been doing it right. I didn't live life right. And I don't mean just financial scars. I mean, emotional scars, et cetera. I want to say, I love you first and get rejected. I want to be vulnerable. I want to take personal and professional risk. I want to get in shape and go to the gym and do it till exhaustion to test my limits. I want that. And so my job is to raise capable young adults so that they can live their adventure and their choices. You know, And I see so many people, friends included, that try and use this carrot or inherited thing to control who their offspring are. And I'm just personally against that. That's what you want to do. Fine. But it just seems very twisted and Machiavellian to me. Specifically, it's the thought process when the kids are zero to 18. Are they seeing the gardener? Are you guys doing first class? He told me, well, if I don't fly first class, they're going to do it eventually with my money anyway. So I'm going to enjoy it. The biggest, I have friends talk about this, et cetera. It's like, You bust your butt, you take risks, you do whatever, you get lucky to get to a certain point to have a certain lifestyle. Then you have kids. What are you going to do? Stick them in the back of the plane? If you have your own plane, what are you going to do? Like not take them? Like, oh, you guys go fly Southwest. I'm going to go take the PJ to wherever we're going. It's just something that they have to adjust to and realize because you're with dad, he's rich, but you're not rich yet. You know what I mean? You still have to, you have a more difficult job to teach them the value of a dollar, the value of hard work, et cetera. And that's just the cost of making it. There's no such thing as a frictionless environment, right? At least here on planet Earth. People aren't superconductors. Life isn't superconductors. The emotional teachings aren't superconductors. So when you really make it and you elevate your life, you now have a more difficult path to ground your kids because they're going to be surrounded by the big house, the nice car, the above average vacations. You're not going to, they're going to see and witness that. And you're going to have to really take extra time to employ them that no, this is your allowance or you got to make your own money. And I try and run the balance between, I want them to taste my life. They want it and experience it, but they don't get it automatically. They don't get that level. And so that's where I'm at. I have a friend who occasionally will just fly commercial and take his kids commercial because just to have it. I moved to St. Thomas. And part of the reason was, is that I was in a very bubble neighborhood. I did it for many reasons. There was tax reasons. There was adventure reasons. But another reason is that I live in a bubble. And I grew up in Houston and I grew up in Jersey City. The city is mixed with all ethnicities and all 
income strata. I used to go with my friends. I wasn't eligible. They would have, when they had the free lunch program and all these kids would go to free lunch, but I was hanging out with them and I'd just go hang out while they eat the free lunch. So my kids weren't experiencing that. And when I took them to St. Thomas, it saw, oh, people don't have it like this all around us. Houston is a bubble. And there was more learnings, just experiential learnings being in that environment than I could ever just blather into their ears. It's hard to be underwater and t- teach a fish that they hate his oxygen and planes, et cetera. You got to take them out there in a the fishbowl and show them. They're like, yeah, you're right. There's planes and there's oxygen and nitrogen floating around and there's balloons. They'll believe you because you're your parent. And then be like, I've never seen it. I don't believe it. So getting them in that environment was worth years of me blathering in their ear and trying to teach him. But I guess the long story is that with respect to grounding your kids, with respect to getting them grit, one of the trade-offs of being a rich person and living your dreams is you have a harder job. And that's just the cost. Good problem to have, I guess. Yes, it's a good problem to have. We're talking about the second generation, right? Because your first generation wealth, you make it. The second tends to be okay because you're influencing them directly and they can invest in. They typically go to college, get good jobs. But what's your opinion on the third generation that blows it? Do you not even care or whatever? Your audience, your your anomalies, your standard deviations for whatever reason. You had some desire, you had some drive or some skill. And the idea that anomaly is going to continue through your bloodline and generations, I think is far-fetched. So what you want to do is get them to, I think, a baseline where they can not struggle, but educate themselves, accumulate skills, accumulate life skills so that they can have a fulfilling life. Does that mean they're going to have the life that you have three generations now? Probably not. I can take it to the extreme, like 10 generations, not saving money and earning money for 10 generations down the line. And that's free. I don't give a shit. These are complete strangers to me. And so as you skip generations, you realize that in my main goal, I won't say your main goal, but my main goal is get this next generation on good footing so that their offspring will be on good footing. And then that if they have an anomalous person that wants to shoot for that lifestyle, there's a, I've seen people with one hundredth the money having a way more fulfilling life than I am. Like have taught me that I'm doing it wrong have one, I don't know, less than one one hundredth the wealth of Warren Buffett. I would never trade places with his life ever. It would be death to me. I just don't think that's a fulfilling life. I don't want to judge what's fulfilling for anybody except for when it relates to me. That would be death for me. You want them secure and ability to use resources to make their own way, but they don't have to be as rich as me to have a fulfilling life, even to have a better life. They could be one hundredth as rich as me. I've gone, I went to Thailand. I was like, fuck, these people are happier than me. They were observably happy. I'm a happy guy. I have a pretty good life. I feel I wake up like I stole something. Even when I'm losing a bunch of money that day, this is a fantasy life. This is, I've exceeded my wildest dreams, the dreams of my ancestors. I've completely exceeded all my dreams when I was putting it out there. And now I had to make new dreams because this is where I'm at. I'm like, well, what's my dream now? What's the concept of enough for me? I'm the edge of the border of a concept of enough for what I want for my life. But when I went to Thailand, I was like, oh my God, these people are actually happier than me and having a more enriching and rewarding experience. And it, it changed my thinking about a lot of things. What's one fun or unique thing, like a teaching moment for your kids? I guess one example would be create a trust where you only pay long-term health care for all the generations in the future or... I had another guy who buys their kids super expensive condos, so they have to pay the freaking tax bill. They have to make at least 20, 30 grand a year to pay for that. No, no, my kids are in college right now. They're under the impression we're on our own once we get out of college. It's not completely true, but I don't want them mentally NPVing their inheritance that they're going to get at 30. I don't want them NPVing and be like, well, I can just go whatever because this irrevocable trust is going to revert over to me, et cetera. But my daughter called me once. I hope she doesn't watch this because she'll kill me. Dad, it's expensive down here. Food is expensive. I'm like, your allowance comes on the next first of the month. Just do what you got to do. Figure it out. Borrow money from your friends. I'm just trying to teach them lessons to get them used to the real world. And part of that moving to St. Thomas was just the real world. You feel it. When they went to go spend a night at a friend, dropped them off at a friend's house to have a sleepover. And it was like, oh, this is what it's like. This many kids in this room. And this is it, the Spartan resources and the road and condition. This is, it's like that, right? And that was a huge learning for them. More than I could ever 
restrict money or do something like that. As they get older, I need to have the discussion of this is how you save. This is a net present value. This is future value. These are different interest rates. This is the risk adjusted rate, things like that, that will get them. But I'm not yet ready to reveal to them, all this will be yours, that type of thing, that conversation. They're not ready. They're not ready, but they are ready to learn the fundamentals about saving, delayed gratification, earning your own keep, a sense of pride and ownership in what you do, doing your best, things like that. One of the things for my kids, I'm not a results-oriented person. Traders aren't. We just do positive expected outcome things. So what really matters is that you do your best. Only you know if you're doing your best. And your best is different on every day. I get this from the four agreements. If anybody's ever read that book, it's like my number one recommended book. Then it's your money or your life. And then it's my book, <laughs> but just do your best. Whatever your best is that day, do your best. And if you've done your best, you will have no regrets. Yeah, it's very right. values oriented. Yes. And if they can put those values into practice, they're not going to have periods like, oh shit, I messed up my twenties or I messed up my thirties or I ruined this. Do your best. What does it mean you're best in your twenties? Really think about your life. What do you want? Map it out. Get out a spreadsheet, spend time thinking about it, meditate on it, know who you are, do your best in every area. Even that means not getting into the top college, not becoming a doctor or lawyer. Now, culture is a, it's a, I'm just going to say it's a motherfucker because the burden, my dad was a lawyer and he became successful, et cetera. And there was so much pressure from people to go into law and so much to live up to what your dad did, right? And his greatness, his level of greatness coming from much more hard scrabble beginnings than I did. Like legal racism, institutionally, you know what I mean? His path. And I look at famous people and people have made it or whatever, and the culture traps people. And just the immediate culture. And so I would never want to strangle my kids into, you got to be a doctor or you got to do this or pushing them into whatever. I'm like, go learn, discover, do your best, live your own adventure. Don't live my adventure. My life is for my adventure. Their life is for theirs. What happens is if they become basket weaver or East Indian Asian studies and they just hang out in Portland all day long and don't do much? That's their life then. Everybody's got to choose. I had this very similar discussion. I try to get my mom. She's 83 and my sister and I were like, she's starting to have dementia and her husband and we're like, we got to move them, whatever. And they're like, they will not move. It's a fist fight. And I told my sister, I was like, everybody's got to choose how they live and die. That's their choice for whatever fulfills them. That's why this book is not, you should do this or you should travel or whatever. It's, hey, whatever you want to do, be intentional about it, figure out what you want out of life and then optimize for it. This is how you optimize for your life. Same thing goes for my kids. Is that what I want for them? No. Do I like it? There's probably going to be, there's going to be a lot of choices. No, but I'm going to put the emphasis on this. It's their fucking life. Their life is not for pleasing me. <laughs> if they want to go to Philippines and basket weave and do volunteer work and become a guru and that fulfills them, then I am happy for them. I'm here for their maximum fulfillment. I'm here for them to be able to make that choice and do my job to make that choice. But eventually, I got to let them out of the jail of me. That jail is not just out of the house or controlling the money or whatever. It's also my expectations or my dreams for what I want them to be. I remember it was Black History Month and I was thinking, wow, what else could Martin Luther King's son done except for continue the civil rights? He's just culturally locked. Was he going to become a commodities <laughs> trader? No. You know what I mean? Is he going to whatever? Like the burden is so strong. He got the name, et cetera. I am so glad that I didn't have that or it didn't happen to me. But in our own ways, and parents do this, is you got to be a doctor. I'm a lawyer and we're a family of lawyers and blah, blah, blah. And there's all this pressure to do this. And I think that people can be pressured and it is a field that they eventually enjoy and get some fulfillment out of it. But I think that leads to a lot of unsatisfied, unfulfilling lives later in life. And it shows up in other areas. I think it shows up in their marriages and stress and divorce because they're like in a role that they did not want to be or not designed to be that is not for them. They're living somebody else's dream. And there's probably nothing worse for a person to do than live somebody else's dream. And I think that maybe this mindset is a little bit liberating, even if they do 
go on drugs and go down the wrong path is your attitude. You did everything you could. At some point, it's their own, they're their own human beings. They have your genetics and your wife's genetics. You, you've done your thing. You've gave them resources. You put them in the schools to help solidify around. You got them in great education. They understand logical thinking, whatever. And they come onto their own, what they want in their life. And yeah, am I like a safety net? If I catch them and they allow me to help them that they fail, I will try. But if they're like, no, this is what I want to be doing. I'm out here and they're not destroying their lives. They're not heroin addicts or whatever, but this is what they want to be doing. This is what fulfills them. They thought it through. Fuck me. What do I got to do with their life? Like my old guy, I'm going to be dead. They're going to live another 30, 40 years. Am I going to burden them with my expectations? I think that's like the absolute worst (laughs) thing I could do. Screw them. All right. Back to ourselves and to wrap things up here. Guy like myself reads the book maybe once or twice, but what's maybe the first couple action item steps, right? What's the implementation plan here for folks? I think one, go to an actuarial table, talk with your doctor, get a good solid estimate of when you're going to die. Get a good estimate. And then get a good estimate from your doctor. How many flights of stairs will I be able to climb at X age? When will I not be able to climb 110 steps? Just kind of get an idea of that. Then two, I think it's the time bucketing exercise. And if you go on diewithzerobook.com and it has like free apps or whatever, it could start you out. But that means unplug from the TV, unplug whatever, and really think about like leisure-wise, health-wise, travel-wise, emotionally, relationship-wise, community-wise, charitable-wise. In each time period, what do you want to happen? What experiences do you want to have? And I've done it and I've been like, holy shit, why am I putting this experience here? This belongs here, this belongs here. I have that thought process right now. I randomly discovered that I like riding trains training, the Orient Express. I was dragged kicking and screaming for this trip. And then I got on, I was like, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. But it's something I can do in my 70s or 80s. And you get the most amazing views that you can't, you don't see it in a plane, you see it in a car because there's no car roads. And it's just great. And I was like, oh my gosh, I've discovered something I love. And then I discovered there's a whole training society. It's a seven prefecture train that goes through Japan. There's the Blue Rovios that goes through Africa and Safari and whatever. And it's this whole thing across Canada, everything. And I was like, we got to do the one from Peru to Machu Picchu. And we were going to go on this trip. And we're like, no, we can do that. My wife and I later in life, not that we won't do any trainings, but shouldn't we be doing this trip instead? And then push that later in life. And I was like, you're right. We should travel here and go visit the city and walk around and do the things that we like doing and go free diving, et cetera, and save save some of these train trips for later. We can push that three, four, five years in the future. And so I think that is getting your death date and doing the time bucket exercise is probably one of the most important exercises because it forces you to know yourself. It forces you to be intentional about your life. It forces you to be like, holy shit, I'm not the guru. I wrote this book to save my own life. So when I did this exercise, I was like, holy shit, this is tough. It was like writer's block again. There's a blank page staring at me and I'm like, okay, let's just start it off. Family. What things do I want to happen? I want to go to my daughter's graduation. I want to do this, whatever. I want to get married, whatever. Travel, leisure, emotional, friends, work, career. And then, okay, now I got like a framework. Let me go to the next time bucket. It was tough. And you have to keep coming back to it. And then you go out in life. We just had a meeting with a travel agent and they were, what do you want? What do you want from us? And I said, ideation. Because a lot of the things I'll do will just be cultural, cutout, cookie cutter stuff. Even the stuff that I think is, out there will still be seeded from my own culture. Like I don't eat fried crickets. I wouldn't eat fried crickets anyway, but I don't eat fried crickets because I didn't grow up in China. When I went to Beijing, fried crickets were every on a stick. And what I realized is that most of the things, habits, activities, even vacation ideas are just cultural. So I need some ideation of stuff that I wouldn't do. I need 30% potluck. And so realizing that, doing my best, bringing experts and time bucketing your life, I think will automatically, immediately make your life more fulfilling. Perfect. Well, great interview, Bill. We appreciate you coming on. Everybody check out the book, Die With Zero. You guys know where to find it on Amazon. Maybe you can be the 2000th positive review out there. I hope so. <laughs> I just hope, <laughs> I hope any kind of implementation, any kind of thought process, people thought, oh, wow, I did this. I read your book and I did this with my parents and I realized they're not going to be around. And I did this and it was so thankful. Just that one thing is going to make their life so much better and they're going to remember it forever. And so I hope everybody takes the concepts and saves their own lives. So we'll file this on the website at simplepassacashflow.com legacy. 
for similar topics. And if you guys like this and you're looking for more peak moments, check out our next retreat. It's probably going to be the summertime in California or the year-end one in Hawaii. Check out more events like that at simplepassivecashflow.com slash events. Hey, this is Bill Perkins, author of Die With Zero. I'm here on Simple Passive Cashflow talking about optimizing your life and living the best life you possibly can. 